Welcome to Health Equity Now. I'm your host, John Gorman. For many of us within the healthcare industry, the greatest crisis looming before us is not the risk of infectious disease, but a rapidly aging and frail population. Over the next 40 years, the number of Americans 65 and older will double to 80 million, or basically one out of four Americans. And over the same period, adults age 85 and older, who are often in the most need of basic personal and clinical care, will nearly quadruple. That is actually the fastest growing segment of the US population is those 85 and older. And this population explosion is something our society is currently ill-equipped for. Just take a moment and imagine what this will mean for elder care centers, home health aides, social security, and the Medicare budget. And as healthcare professionals, or more importantly, as the kids who depend on these services for our parents, and who will eventually depend upon them ourselves if it isn't means tested by then, it is vital that we do not sacrifice quality care to meet this surge in demand. And this is where innovative ideas, like the program of all-inclusive care for the elderly comes in and why it was our very first investment at Nightingale Partners. So to talk with us today about the state of elder care and the options that seniors have for care today and the promise of pace is my dear friend and our very first investee, Dr. Stephen Gordon. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you, John. Appreciate the chance to be here. Oh, it's wonderful to have you, brother. Stephen Gordon has more letters than I think just about everybody else on this show combined. He's a board-certified geriatrician with a lifelong passion for improving the care of the elderly. He founded Edenbridge in 2016 after spending two years working as a primary care geriatrician at the Pace uh, Center at Upham's Corner Health Center in Dorchester, Massachusetts, uh, right down the street from Lowell where I spent some of my adolescence. And he was the director of the Iora Health Fellowship in Primary Care Innovation, where he specialized in clinical systems design, care planning, and provider development. He continues to practice on a limited basis at Upham's Corner, and he is on the faculty of the Harvard Medical School, holds clinical appointments at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, Boston Medical Center, and Hebrew Senior Life, where he teaches in the Harvard Multi-Campus Fellowship in Geriatrics. He is a supervising physician for United Community Health Plan, where he oversees more than 30 nurse practitioners caring for nursing home patients across the Boston area. Stephen, I think it's safe to say you love working with old folks. <laughs> Yes, I do. And so tell us a little bit about your background and what motivated you to get into medicine and specifically geriatrics. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, I'll tell you, I'm sort of one of those doctors who knew what specialty I was going into before I was even certain I was going into medicine. I um, actually, I grew up the son of a physician and kind of uh, never really was sure that that was the life that I wanted. Um, And, uh, but had this experience when I was young, when I was about 11 years old of visiting um, my great-grandmother in a nursing home, and, and she, I had gotten to know her before that and got to see her um, after being institutionalized, and that really left a mark on me, it kind of instilled in me a lifelong interest in the care of the frail elderly. So wow. uh, when I got out of college, I ended up going to a company called the Advisory Board Company, which yep. I think you know about. Right down the street, DC. we know well. And and it's an interesting story why I'd done that. They had, they had recently published a book, uh, a study on innovations in elder care, which by the way, included a um, profile of PACE as an interesting model. And they have, they have used that copy in the uh, Office of Career Services at Harvard. And so when I was kind of browsing around thinking, uh-huh. what am I going to do? I came across that and was like, I got to go work for this company. So I spent uh, four years, you know, as a, as a 
healthcare uh, consultant really, um, and increasingly was planning to become a nursing home executive. Um, and I actually ended up going to business school really with that in mind. But along the way, I was spending a lot of time in nursing homes and actually interacting with, with residents. And that kind of helped me understand that to have the kind of impact I really wanted to have, I needed to understand the clinical aspects as well. So I did kind of the unusual thing of going to medical school after business school, kind of the reverse <laughs> order, most people do it. And I had the privilege of training at Yale, which has a great history of geriatrics, yep. and then came back up to Harvard to finish my training in, in internal medicine and, and, and geriatrics. And by the time I got out of fellowship, um, my focus had kind of changed. I realized what I really cared about was the population of people who were nursing home eligible, the real frail elderly. It right. wasn't necessarily the nursing homes themselves. And I kind of decided that I wanted to focus instead on making nursing homes better, which is a very worthy goal, on how do you keep people out of nursing homes? Right. And so I ended up taking a job at a PACE program, the one that I still still work at a few weekends a month um, here in, in, in Dorchester. And um, that was just kind of an incredible experience to open me up to the real um, intricacies and the depth of this model of care that has been kind of um, uh, hovering since um, the 1970s, but yeah. um, uh, hasn't hasn't really um, hasn't really exploded yet. hasn't really hasn't really um, grown the way that we would like it to. And at the same time, I also had become good friends with a, a gentleman I believe you know, Rushika Fernandepule. Yeah. And he had founded uh, Iora Health, and they were just getting into the Medicare Advantage space. And he had called me up and said, "Hey, you know, we need someone with some geriatric expertise to come talk to us." Um, about how this model could, you know, work for this for the frail for for the elderly, I should say, and um, that was just that kind of turned into a part time job while I was working at Pace, and mm -hmm. I had this experience of about two or three years of kind of doing these two separate things. One was working clinically in the Pace model and seeing kind of the beauty and elegance of that, and then also working for you know a, a for profit um, but very mission oriented startup company and seeing all of the things that they were able to do. And it was that combination of the two that really helped me to realize what I wanted to do was kind of marry these two. And um, that's what I did in 2016. Um, broke off, um, said, let's found a company about building a better system of care for the frail community dwelling elderly. Um, initially, we said this isn't necessarily about pace. But when we started to draw out what we thought this should look like and took it around to people, we quickly realized we were basically drawing what looked like a pace program. Right. And so we decided, let's start with pace. And what a great call. Now, Pace, as you mentioned, Stephen, has been around almost 50 years now. Um, the program was considered extremely innovative then, as it is still today. Um, and now, against the backdrop of a COVID pandemic that's raging through congregate care facilities like nursing homes, uh, Pace seems more important than ever, which is why it was our, you were our very first uh, investment in Nightingale. So can just tell us, tell our listeners a little bit about the basics of PACE and, um, and then why, why do you think it's taken so long for the program to really start to get some serious traction in terms of the number of people it's serving? Yeah, no, great, great question. So PACE originated in, 19, in the 1970s in the Chinese community in San Francisco. And, and, and Onlock, yeah. And Onlock, exactly. Yeah. And what they said is, you know, we, this is sort of no longer consistent with what we believe is the right thing to be doing for our frail elderly members um, of our community. And what if we were to take all the money we're spending on nursing homes 
and channel it into community a community-based program that could provide everything people needed in order to stay in the community. And they came up with this model that kind of consists of a few key components. The first is a bricks and mortar adult day health center. And this is a place where people can come for uh, the day. They can come for, they can come five days a week. They can have some meals there. They can socialize and they can also see their, their, their physicians and their, their various, various other members of the interdisciplinary team. And the second thing is that interdisciplinary team. So you've got this very integrated interdisciplinary team that includes medicine and nursing and physical therapy and occupational therapy and nutrition and social work. And that team is based in the Adult Day Health Center, but has the capabilities of also seeing people in their homes, et cetera. The third component are deep home health capabilities. So you can't kind of just create a daytime nursing home. You need to be able to help care for people when they're also at home. Right. And that kind of magical combination of being able to have people come into the center, but then also be able to see them at home is critical. So every PACE program has very robust home health capabilities. Um, the fourth component is transportation. You need to have a way of people getting around yes. and having kind of geriatric minded transportation having van drivers who understand what that means and recognize that they actually are a part of the interdisciplinary team. I often say, you know, who knows first when someone is starting to decline? It's usually the van driver. Yeah. Because they're the person who knocks on that person's door every morning and sees how long it takes them to answer and also helps them get on and off that van, which is arguably the most physically stressful part of their day. That's sort yeah. of a stress test that people go through. So that van driver is critical. Um, and so the question is then, how do you pay for something that is sort of this expansive and, and across all of these needs? And the answer is you gotta pay with global capitation. And so that was the fifth component of what the model looked like. It was global capitation combining Medicare and Medicaid. Yep. What ended up happening is it was a, a big success and it ended up getting picked up by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and then ultimately written in to the Medicare legislation and um, became really pretty widely considered to be the gold standard of care for frail community dwelling seniors. Right. I, often, I often say when you're taking the geriatric boards, um, you know, uh, one hint is anytime pace is one of the answers, it's always the right answer. It's almost yeah. like, you know, it's, you, you, can't, you can't argue against pace. Pace is the gold standard. And I think people pretty widely recognize that. I think that the real reason that, you know, well, one of the first things we did when we founded the company is we said, you know, let's not focus on being first to market right now. Let's focus on really getting this right. And we, you know, I'd been, I'd been kind of trained at the advisory board company, which does big studies. We took a team and we took our initial kind of seed investment. We spent 18 months just going around the country asking the questions, what works in pace, what doesn't work in pace, and why pace hasn't scaled. We put that together. We have a document we, you know, sometimes call the 23 reasons pace hasn't scaled. It's actually grown to more than that by now. Wow. Um, and that, you know, gets to your second question, which is why hasn't, why hasn't this program scaled? And the answer is we believe it's not a single thing. It's a lot of things. And the program was really, you know, focused at the beginning. It was created not to scale. It wasn't created, you know, they weren't against scaling, but they oh, were yeah. focused on how do we provide care for frail elderly. And so there's a lot of things that need to be kind of retrofit for scaling pace. Um, the reasons that pace hasn't scaled include lack of access to capital. That has changed a bit with the um, in introduction of for-profit pace. Sure. But they also include things like how we train our staff. They include a lot of issues around awareness. You ask your typical primary care physician in this country, what's PACE? 
They have no idea. Right. And right. I guarantee you every primary care physician has some number of participants who would be appropriate for a PACE program. Sure. So really, in you know, th- there's a lot of different reasons. We've kind of designed the Edenbridge model around this deep understanding of that. And we're basically retrofitting a really wonderful model to do this in a way where we can actually, instead of reaching 55,000 people, can reach 550,000 people or even, you know, million or yeah. two million people. Yeah. I mean, these sites have typically been characterized as, you know, under 400 patients per site is typical around PACE, which has been the big constraint. And the cost all in of building one of these adult daycare centers that I've seen at places like Los Angeles Jewish and, and elsewhere has been in the ballpark of two and a half to four million bucks, depending on the size. So it, it, it it's actually not a lot of capital to get started. And um, we had the pleasure yesterday of touring your newest site. And um, it was just an amazing experience to see what you guys have built there. And it came in on time, on budget, which is unheard of these days. Um, and walking around your new site, Stephen, really drove home certainly you know, for me, but I've seen these before, but for my colleagues from Nightingale who were there, that this is a model that's fundamentally different than traditional long-term healthcare. And, and it's evident as you walk through a facility like yours. So tell us a little bit about some of the differences in traditional long-term care. Yeah, no, absolutely. And great, great question. Um, there's really, there's no doubt PACE is a special jewel within the world of long-term care. Um, I think the um, the actual center is a huge piece of the magic. We often think of the magic as taking place in kind of three places. It takes place in the center, particularly the day room where people have the opportunity to socialize and just, and just be in a safe place with people who are, you know, there available to them. The second place is the person's home. And we make sure that we're integrating appropriate appropriately into the person's home and creating an environment where they can live as safely as possible and it's consistent with their goals. And then the third place that the magic really happens is in the interdisciplinary team room. And, you know, in each of our centers, you know, the interdisciplinary team has a room where they sit around a table and that's where they really do the magic of helping figure out how to spend precious healthcare resources on a very needy population in a way that's consistent with the goals of the program and the goals of each each individual participant. So, you know, sometimes we think of PACE as um, uh, a a concierge care model for nursing home eligible, you know, poor people. Um, And in its own way, it's really revolutionary in concept. I'll say the main thing that the two main things that really drive the model, um, in addition to kind of those those physical places, is the the depth of integration of the interdisciplinary team. I've worked across various parts of the healthcare system. There's nowhere that you find a team that is as closely knit as in a PACE program. Yeah, and then and then the second thing is just the fact that they are globally capitated and they can make decisions and they can make decisions without the red tape of the of insurance approval. Right. And so that allows them to do really intelligent and kind of sometimes very obvious things, um, right. but do them quickly and you know get right to the heart of problems before they balloon into bigger problems. I mean, it was certainly revolutionary and prescient at the time, one, to go to global cap for PACE sites back in the, in the 70s and 80s. Um, but then... Um, 
to really look at the all-in rate that you guys get paid, it's based off of the traditional cost of nursing home care to Medicaid, and then the traditional cost of the Medicare Advantage package of benefits. So in effect, pay sites are getting, depending on where they operate, on the magnitude of over $100,000 per patient per year, which gives plenty of room to figure out how to outmanage the cost of a nursing home. Um, and, and really gives a lot of leeway for the home and community-based services that, that really define the model outside of the center. Exactly. That's so well put. So tell us a little bit, you, you started on it, but tell us about the founding of, of Edenbridge and, and the business model that you guys espouse. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when we first started the company, again, we said, let's build a better model of care for frail community dwelling seniors. This isn't necessarily PACE. Let's figure out what this should look like. And we started sketching it out. We got a group of, you know, geriatric minded people, including some geriatricians together. And we sketched it out. And we started taking it around to some people who we considered very smart people like Alice Bonner. And they kind of reflected back to us and sort of said, you know, it looks like you want to build a PACE program. And we kind of <laughs> have this moment where we kind of looked at it and we were like, okay, so we've got the adult day health center. We've got this interdisciplinary team. We've got global capitation. We've got transportation. We've got home health. What about this isn't a home? What, what about this isn't a PACE program? And we realized, you know, we had sort of, you know, somewhat naively asked the same question that the Chinese community in San Francisco had asked in the 1970s. What is it that you need to help keep people safe and, and really living their best possible lives in the community? And so we said, let's focus on PACE for now. We're not always necessarily only going to do PACE, but let's start with the foundation of this. Let's get really smart about this. Let's figure out why it hasn't scaled. And let's build a, a network of people who can really help us uh, navigate the 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 challenges that we're going to face because we know we are. So we we took that kind of understanding of scale. We added it to you know a deep bench of geriatric experts, including you know people with deep experience in the pace model. Um, I remain to this day, as we mentioned, you know a, a practicing pace physician, although on a very part time basis. Um, Alan Abrams, our chief geriatrician, um, in addition to being, you know, a decade-long director of the Harvard Fellowship in Geriatrics, um, was the founding medical director of a PACE program. Um, and then we have a, a, a large bench of, of other geriatric experts and experts in other disciplines who we can we can call on and we work with very closely in developing what we're doing. So it's this, this emphasis on figuring out scale, this emphasis on really geriatric-informed care, and then creating a team that kind of balances this all out. And that team is a combination of people with expertise in PACE and in geriatrics, but also people with real innovative hearts who really understand what it means to break barriers and to be a little bit irreverent about things because we don't wanna just do things the way that they've always been done. We're interested in doing things significantly better. And so, you know, we've been very fortunate to kind of we have, a, I think, a, a, a compelling story that brings a lot of people on board. And sometimes they describe Eden Bridge as being kind of part company and part movement. It sort of feels like a <laughs> political movement at times. We've had it. a number of really talented people join our team from uh, other PACE programs, but also from, you know, several people have uh, joined us from Iora um, and a number of different um, places. The, the last piece of our business model, I would say, is this really strong emphasis on community connection and community coalition. This is probably what defines us most 
um, as as kind of uh, unique in 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 the way that we operate. So we really um, we do not believe in just kind of plopping down pace programs in places and sort of saying one size fits all. We believe in getting to understand the community really well, and we 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 spend a lot of time building. Uh, relationships with the community and understanding what's actually going to work here and what does this community need. And one of the ways we do that is we also create joint ventures. So a lot of our programs are structured as joint ventures with local community partners. And I think that that's a big piece of um, kind of how we've been able to um, make make this work so far. I remember when I was going through your pitch deck about a year ago, as we were embarking on on leading your first fundraising round, that the first impression I had was, my God, Stephen has put together the Avengers squad of geriatric care here. And I'd never seen a team assembled both in your operators as well as your board members. Um, and as you point out, Stephen, I mean, the real secret sauce of PACE is the team. Uh, it's not the bricks and mortar. It's not you know all the stuff you're able to do in the home, but it's that interdisciplinary team and uh, this all-star squad that you've pulled together. Tell us a little bit about how you make the staffing decisions you make when you guys are dropping centers in the ground as fast as anybody has. Um, clearly that local angle is critically important as it is in our work on other social determinant interventions. Tell us a little bit about the hiring process and the kind of priorities you make on these kind of people that, that you bring into your PACE sites. Yeah, no, great, great, great question. And I'll say that the overarching uh, principle that guides our kind of uh, team building is a lesson I learned from, you know, my, my close mentor, Rushika Fernanda Pillay, and that is um, we're going to hire for personality and train for skill. Um, it is much, exactly. much harder to kind of write um, someone's, you know, actual personal qualities than it is to teach them stuff. So we have made sure we've hired some incredible expertise, but really the first thing is, is this person a culture fit with this company? And yeah. we think that if we get the culture right from the beginning, then the people who are hiring, who are going to be then hiring more people are going to pass that on and they're going to hire the right kind of people. Um, we've also been very focused on not just having all the expertise necessarily on our team, but having a really deep bench of advisors, including, you know, people such as yourself, Bruce Vladek, Jenny Chin Hansen, yeah. um, Rushika himself, um, and people who just have deep expertise in this field, who we can go to, who can help us. And we're very, very open to sort of what we, we, we always are asking, what do we not know? Let's, let's not focus on just, let's not get super, it's going to get super, you know, um, uh, arrogant about what we think we know. We might know a fair amount, but there's so much more that we don't know. And so we're always asking questions about what do we think we might be getting wrong? What do we, where do we think our blind spots are? Um, I'd say that we also focus a lot on innovative thinkers. We, we don't want a group of people who are just going to kind of say, okay, well, that's the government regulation. There's nothing we can do about it. We want people who are going to say, that's the government regulation and we need to respect that. But what if? Ask people who ask what if a lot. Yeah. Um, and then finally, you know, we've, we've hired a lot of people with real experience in scaling multi-center healthcare operations. I think that it's a challenge, a unique set of challenges to scale healthcare. Um, and it's because of this balance between the fact that, you know, you need to scale stuff, you need to have a certain degree of standardization, you need to have a certain degree of centrality, but then you also need to respect this fact that healthcare is intensely local and that what works one place is not gonna work another place necessarily. Right. 
And that's not just because people have different preferences. It's because the relationships with hospitals are different, the relationships yeah. with community health centers, et cetera. So that's really, um, that's really goes at the, the core of uh, how, we, how we have built the team to date and how we're planning to continue in the future. It was exactly the same approach I took at, at Gorman Health Group and, and take it Nightingale today. It's like the old Jack Welch model, right? It's yep. like, you know, you hire for, are they with the program? And then you teach them the skills. And that always got us, um, you know, the, the folks who were really invested in their work, they were lifelong learners. Uh, they, were, they were alphas and that they, they were perfectly happy being lone wolves but they actually were a whole lot happier in a pack of like-minded people uh, that, that thought and viewed the world as they did. But the biggest thing I think both our companies hire for is compassion and um, you know, a sense of, of community and service. And, and what I was always been struck by, by anybody I ever met in a pace site was also the humility. That there's still a lot we can learn from these patients, from these communities that we operate in, and that we always have to be mindful of uh, the adjustments that we need to make to be even more culturally competent and more aware of what, you know, our communities are, are dealing with in order to serve them better. Um, Stephen, I've described this certainly in the age of COVID as the golden age of pace. Um I mean, one, I've never been a fan of nerves. My mother works in them uh, still to this day. And, um, you know, it, it has always struck me as the one provider that patients don't ever want to be in and payers hate paying for. And um, the thought was that when we had a death rate of almost 1,700 per 100,000 in nursing homes, and reading just this morning that still less than 50% of nursing home staff are vaccinated yet. That to me screamed the golden age of pace, that we need alternatives to these congregate care settings that will enable these folks, these very vulnerable patients to stay at home safely longer and independently. Um, why do you think this is the golden age of pace? Yeah, no, another another great question, and, and the first thing I'll say is it really is the golden age of pace. Yeah, um, and that was not necessarily true when we first started the company. We took a bit more of a bet, but um, this really um, the the last um, the last year and the last six months in particular, really, um, you're just seeing incredible growing interest in this space, and and with such good reason. Um, you know, pace has been sitting around for you know 40 years, somewhat dormant, um, and this is. You know, really, it's moment, and there's some key reasons why. You know, quite, you know, on the uh, the most obvious is you know the, just the demographic funnel. Then, as you pointed out, the number of frail elderly who are going to be, um, you know, we're going to we're going to be caring for in the next um, decades. But there's also just this acknowledgement by society that nursing homes are not the right answer for most people. Right. And I'd like to say that you know before COVID, most people didn't want to be in a nursing home, and now they really are afraid of really it. Don't. And not only are they afraid of it, but their kids who before may have said, look, mom, look, dad, this is just what we got to do. This is where you are. They're, yeah. they're really concerned about it. And don't, don't get me wrong. I believe there is a role for nursing homes, both for short-term rehab and some people yeah. who need that type of long-term care. I'm on staff at Hebrew Senior Life. I want us to continue to make nursing homes as, as, as good as we can. 
but almost everybody wants to age in their community in yeah. at home. And so people are just realizing, well, how many options do we have to do this? And I think that the thing that is really helping is the recognition that we have a lot of very piecemeal solutions that kind of provide a piece of the answer, but PACE is the whole answer. You enroll yeah. in a PACE program and it is truly all-inclusive care. You And it's not just the disciplines on the interdisciplinary team. You know, in our version of the model, which we've based a lot on kind of my yeah. own clinical practice, you know, when you're in the hospital, I'm the attending physician. I just was on call this last weekend and I spent, you know, a good chunk of the weekend rounding on our participants because we want to be in charge of their care and working with them regardless of where they are. If they get admitted to short-term rehab in a nursing home, we're the attending physicians there because we have built up the relationship. We're the ones with geriatric expertise. We're the ones who understand their values. And so I think people have recognized that this is really not just, um, the best solution for a number of other reasons, but it's the most elegant solution. I like to say pace is what you would build if you were building a solution on an island and not building it on a broken healthcare system. If you <laughs> have a population of people on an island, yeah. including some old people and some nurses and some doctors, whatever, you put together a program that had nothing to do with the payment system. It was just the right answer. You would build a pace program. Yeah. And so I think at this moment when we're realizing we have a very underdeveloped infrastructure for caring for the elderly, um, and we are, people are increasingly recognizing that PACE really is um, a, a beautiful um, answer to this problem. I mean, so much of it for me was the awareness when I first toured Onlock, and that must have been almost 30 years ago now. And when I first toured SCAN in Long Beach, which yep. was one of the other early adopters of this program. And I began my career of work in Puerto Rico that a couple of things became abundantly clear that many Asian communities in particular Chinese communities do not commit their elders to nursing homes. And down in Puerto Rico, there isn't a single goddamn nursing home on the entire island because these Latino families make it their mission to care for abuela and abuelo. And that there was never much of a work nursing home care in these communities. And I don't think these guys got it right because otherwise, you know, all these other folks are sending their elders off to what are in effect warehouses for people who are dying. And, um, and that's what really was the face plant moment for me was, you know, if we do this right, we may not even need nursing homes aside from short-term rehab. Precisely. And uh... I'm going to tell a quick story that you could edit yeah. out if you need no, to. No, please do. Um, so, uh, John, you're so uh, you're just spot on, and you know it's interesting. I actually I married into a Chinese family, a very traditional oh. Chinese family. My wife is um, from Hong Kong, and um, uh, 15 years ago, maybe maybe 13 years ago, I. I took a trip to Hong Kong to ask her grandfather, who's the patriarch of the family, for permission to marry her. And of course, this is a—it was a very um, established, uh, fairly wealthy, um, you know, uh, uh, gentleman who, um, you know, he—he didn't—he uh, didn't—he didn't learn your language. You listened to his language regardless yeah. of whether or not you could speak it. And yeah. He. He gave me a 45-minute talk in Cantonese. Didn't realize I didn't. I'm not sure you realized I didn't understand a word of it. But my sister-in-law, who was there with me, um, translated the whole thing. And he had spent the whole time putting up his five fingers and talking about, you know, the middle finger and then the two fingers before it and the two fingers after it. And the idea was, you're this generation, and we and what I want to talk to you about is your responsibility to the two generations before you and the two generations after you. 
And I turned to my sister-in-law at the end and I said, so tell me, you know, the punchline, what does that mean? And she said, he just told you never to put him in a nursing home. <laughs> and I said, oh my God, I wish I could speak Cantonese because I wish he could realize the degree to which this is my life's calling. Yeah. So um, it is so true that um, there, are, there, are, there are a number of cultures, um, but the Chinese community in particular, um, where this is just not the way that you treat yeah. your, your, your seniors. Um, so um, remind me what the question was, sorry. Well, just, you know, the cultural differences in some of the communities that we operate in, and like in Puerto Rico, it's always about yeah. the family. And you could have had that same conversation with a 70-year-old abuelo in San Juan, except in Spanish, yeah, fast exactly. And that there's this firmly held belief entrenched in generations that we are responsible for the generations before and after us. And that means we don't institutionalize our elders unless they absolutely have to be there for like rehab purposes. Yeah. And, and it's embodied in this model. And that's why I love it so much as you do. Um, the Delta variant is on the move. And now we've got Delta plus emerging, which is even more contagious. And Delta was 70% more contagious than the first round of COVID. Um, what is this going to mean for home and community-based services? And what does it mean for congregate care settings? Yeah, that's such a good question. And, you know, there's sort of, there's, there's good news and bad news about this from our perspective. Um, yeah. the, the good news is that this is not a surprise to us. Um, we never thought this battle was over. And between the potential of viruses to mutate and the fact that people don't remember, elderly people do not mount the same kind of immune response that younger people right. do, whether it's to the disease itself or to vaccination. So we were never expecting this to be over. And what we found is, over the last you know, 18 months or so is PACE really provides the flexibility to do two key things. And the first is provide people with the highest possible quality of life during non-pandemic times, when they can be in their home, they can be in the center, they can be in the community, et cetera. And then it allows us to do the second thing, which is to very quickly and effectively basically bubble people up in safety. And so that during pandemic times, whether it's at the community level or the national level, we can bubble people up in their homes. We can have a limited number of people visit them in their homes and take care of their essential needs, but we can do that. We have the flexibility to go back and forth. And that's one of the reasons why this actually really is, you know, the golden age for PACE after, after, um, yeah. after, after COVID-19 has helped people um, understand just how vulnerable people are in, in institutional settings. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and so just curiously, what is Eden Bridge's policy on staff vaccination? I mean, it looks <laughs> like we're heading to mandates. I mean, it is the only way of getting around these holdouts is yeah. that you got to be required to go to work or to get on a plane or so how you guys that look everybody that we met with at your center yesterday was vaccinated and relaxed <laughs> so it's a great question the good news is to be honest we have not yet had to face that challenge because uh, everyone has you know not only been vaccinated but volunteered the fact that they've been vaccinated yeah. Um, we are debating that right now, um, and we are leaning towards um, certainly anyone who is is participant facing um, is gonna is probably gonna need to be vaccinated. Yeah. Um, and I yeah. think it's just a question of safety. Um, yeah, I think that I if there are people who, for strong um, you know re reasons, religious reasons, other reasons, um, really 
do not feel they can get vaccinated and they're part of our, our central team, I think we can take the appropriate precautions to make sure that that isn't an issue. I think we're open to that, but um, by and large, our, our participant facing staff are going to need to be vaccinated. Yeah. And I think it's just, it's just too dangerous. Yeah, it's just, and it's just the smart, rational thing to do. Yeah. Um, what do you see happening here in Washington, Stephen, that could change the outlook for PACE programs like Eden Bridge? Yeah, so, um, you know, there's some big stuff on the horizon. I'd say the biggest thing is a piece of legislation that Bob Casey, the senator from Pennsylvania and the chair mm-hmm. of the Committee on Aging, recently introduced called the PACE Plus Act. Mm. And the goal of this is to expand long-term services and supports uh, provided in the home and community by strengthening and expanding the access to PACE. Um, it does a few key things. It encourages and helps states to establish more PACE programs. It does a, a bit in terms of streamlining the application process to set up new programs or expand existing ones. It helps make it more affordable for people with Medicare only to become participants mm-hmm. by allowing different payment levels based on individual levels of need. Mm-hmm. And then it has significant support for community-based organizations to get involved with PACE. And that's, of course, something that resonates very deeply with Edenbridge. So um, we are optimistic. The bill's still sort of in the early stages, but that would be a meaningful change in terms of the ability of PACE to expand. I mean, I certainly think the whole country could benefit from just going the path that your home state of Massachusetts has with PACE, which has been extremely welcoming and, and actually pretty thoughtful about where it authorizes sites to go. Um, Mass is just so different than so many other states in that, you know, they, they are making concerted efforts to like set up PACE programs in like senior living centers and, you know, assisted living facilities and, and things of that sort. And there's certainly more of that needed at the national level in order to facilitate the growth of this model. Um, is there legislation you'd like to see introduced or yeah. changes that could be made? Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, anything that would remove barriers and hurdles to scaling pace, we obviously want to see um, introduced. Anything that can reduce regulatory timelines and fewer restrictions on opening new programs. Um, But one specific piece of legislation or one specific um, uh, issue that we would like to see addressed is um, flexibility around uh, choice for Part D coverage. The way Mm. it works is that, you know, PACES is not by law limited to dual eligibles, people on Medicare and Medicaid, but in reality, it practically is because it's prohibitively expensive for people who are on uh, Medicare only Mm. because they need to pay the Medicaid part themselves. And in addition to tiering that payment, um, there's then this other added burden, which is that people need to then pay the um, full cost of the Medicare Part D premium, which can be $800, $900, you know, $1,000 a month, which sort of adds insult to injury. And so there have been, um, there's an increasing support for uh, legislation to allow um, people who are on Medicare only to end up being able to get that at the rate that a typical, you know, PACE participant would get it. So that's one thing that we're really interested in seeing happen. That's a, that would be a great fix. And the more flexibility this program can get, the more it will grow. Um, finally, Stephen, what new opportunities are you pursuing right now that you guys are most excited about? And we, we love being on this journey with you guys. Yeah, no, we, we really, we love being on this journey with you too and really appreciate the support. You know, I, I obviously can't go into too many specifics, sure. but I would say that um, we are pursuing opportunities in, in several states right now, including, including those with active pace legislation and support for expansion, as well as those that are earlier along in the adoption curve. And um, we're pretty excited. The future is, is pretty bright in this field. So. Yeah, and you guys are just shooting the lights out and that record of success we're sure is going to propel you forward.
Well, thank you, my friend. This has been a wonderful, illuminating conversation on one of our favorite programs. It's been around forever and whose time has finally come. And uh, it's just great to be uh, on this journey with, uh, with such a trailblazer as yourself, Stephen. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for, for being part of our larger team and, and supporting our work. Our pleasure.